KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. What I thought about was practice. I, I really just tried to think of being in the gym by myself, what that felt like for me, just saying, you know, I've done this before. I've made a hundred in a row in practice in the gym by myself. I can make them now, you know, and it was kind of that quick little snapshot for me. And our guest this week, former Villanova basketball star Harold Jensen, really has a place in college basketball history as a key member of the Villanova team that shocked the world in 1985, won the national championship over Georgetown. And Harold, thanks so much for taking the time. My my pleasure. It's great to be on with you. So what are you doing these days, kind of even pandemic aside? Where has life taken you since your days at Villanova? Sure. You know, I, I stayed stayed close, haven't really left the area, fell in love with Philadelphia and, and this area um, way back when, uh, after going to school here. So live live out uh, outside the city just a few minutes and uh, have been working mostly in the marketing world, a company called Sparks, and very blessed. Great, great, uh, enjoyable life. A couple of children that are 20 years old and in college, didn't stay home, didn't stay in the area. <laughs> we were hopeful. But uh, they both went their own directions with college. Um, yeah, no, no complaints. Been very, been very fortunate. And I love staying in the Philadelphia area and following the teams, you know, and following Big Five basketball. It's still, uh, still terrific. Does it seem possible that that, that night against Georgetown was 35, 36 years ago? <laughs> it doesn't, actually, no. I, you know, I was 20 that night when it happened, and it's it's now we're, you know, we're past 20. All You know, we doubled it plus, and, and yeah, it's just hard to believe, even more so, and I guess becomes more special, too, for all of us as the years pass and as you watch the tournament happen each year and see, you know, see teams that kind of navigate their way that are upstarts or maybe, you know, teams that just weren't considered you know maybe one of the final four contenders uh, sneak their way through so it's always fun to watch that happen well before i want to talk to tons about that season in that game but we'll we'll get to that when what's your first basketball memory growing up my first basketball memory was a rec a recreation league i grew up in connecticut trumbull connecticut uh, about an hour outside of new york the first rec league season that I was involved with. I want to say that I was probably eight years old, seven or eight years old. And you go into the gym and they line the kids up and everybody gets in line and makes, you know, takes layups. And the guy who's organizing it is walking around the room trying to find coaches for the league. And lo and behold, my dad raises his hand and says, sure, he'll coach. When that happens, you get your, your child, your, you know, your son, to, to be on your team as kind of your, <clears throat> your first pick. So here I am, you know, playing for my dad right out of the gate as an eight year old kid. And we went out and picked my friends basically <laughs> to be on that team. There was, there was nothing to do with anybody's ability or skill level. It was just, I knew Johnny and I knew Charlie and I knew Fred. And, you know, we made a group of, you know, kind of a, a couple neighborhoods that lived near us <laughs> And we had a ball with it. We had a lot of fun with it. But yeah, that's kind of when it all when it all started. When do you, did you fall in love with the sport immediately, or did you enjoy the camaraderie and the sport was just kind of the vehicle? And when do you start to gravitate to, man, I can't wait to get out on the court and just shoot or whatever? 
it was immediate for me. I, I, I loved it and I had an incredible passion for it. And anywhere we were, I would create a basket and a ball. And it might have been in a, a hotel or a motel somewhere if we once in a while would take a little trip, you know, up to uh, the Cape or something like that. And we'd be in a motel somewhere and I would take the wastebasket. I'd put it in the corner of the room. I would take a towel and wrap rubber bands around it. And I would shoot until my parents told me to go to bed. <laughs> um, so I, I was extremely passionate about it. I enjoyed the rec leagues, but then I would just go find, you know, games wherever I could find it or ask buddies to play and anything from, shooting around and, you know, shooting outdoors, indoors, wherever it was. I, I really, I loved it. And I had a tremendous passion for it from, from early on. When do you start thinking, man, I can maybe take this to college. Like this could be a, I can take this further than a lot of people. In the eighth and ninth grade, I think that's where I, I guess I started to excel a little bit. I had a couple of uh, high school coaches in the area, private schools that were started to, you know, drop hints and drop notes to say, hey, we'd love to have you someday come to our school. Have you ever considered that kind of thing? And our junior high school, a guy named Dick Shea, uh, junior high school coach, I remember him talking to me and my parents after a game one day in ninth grade. And he said, you know, just get ready because you're going to start to be recruited pretty soon. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, well, he said, you, you're, you know, you, you're, you're getting there. You know, you have some ability, you're starting to grow a little bit. And he said, my sense is you're going to be able to play, you know, at the collegiate level. And it was kind of eye-opening to hear that, you know, as give or take 14, you know, 15 year old, obviously now it's very different kids at eight or nine years old, or they're already targeted to be a Nike kid or an Adidas kid. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, back then we had no idea. I had no idea. I just loved to play and was on some pretty good teams, had a group of guys that really liked to play and we had success as teams, which I loved. So, you know, probably like ninth grade, I think is when eighth, ninth grade, um, and my high school was just three grades back then. It was 10th, 11th, and 12th. So I was still in junior high at the time. But that's kind of when it started to hit me that, hey, maybe this could be something to, to take further. As you're going through the recruiting process, was Villanova always the leader? Were there other schools that, in a parallel universe, maybe you go in a different direction? Or did it always seem like you're going to end up on the main line? No, good question. I, it was interesting because you, you, like the first thing that happens is you start getting mail. You know, there's just a ton of stuff coming in the mail and it was coming from all directions. I had gotten notes from ACC schools. Digger Phelps sent me a postcard from from Yugoslavia where he was with his family. <laughs> I don't know if he sent it, but at least it had his name on it and so, somebody mailed it to me. So I had a variety of schools and I, I kind of liked some, certainly because of the coaches. Like I, I liked Terry Holland at Virginia quite a bit. And Bill Foster had gone from Duke to South Carolina and South Carolina was an independent at the time. And coach Bayheim up at Syracuse recruited me a little bit. And then Villanova was in the mix and then locally Connecticut and Providence as well uh, coming from Connecticut. So there was about a half a dozen schools that I started to, and a couple oddballs, UCLA and some, some oddballs, but I, it, it became clear to me after I visited, that's when it really became clear to me. And I guess the one other thing I would say along the way there that 
had an impact on me was seeing the early Big East tournaments at the Providence Civic Center. My dad grew up playing basketball and loved it and was a fan. He loved sports. And he took me to the early Big East tournaments, which were at Providence Civic Center. That was really neat to see as a, you know, as a high school kid, it was pretty amazing. You know, there were some really talented guys that had come into the league then Sleepy Floyd for Georgetown and John Bagley at Boston College and Corny Thompson and Mike McKay at UConn and Villanova then had John Pannone and Stuart Granger and so, you know, I started to see that happen and I thought, boy, that could be pretty neat. I, maybe I could, maybe I could be there, you know, at some point. And then the recruiting thing happened and a few Big East schools are interested. And that's when it started to really take shape. But once I visited Villanova, spent time with Coach Mass, with the guys on the team, I, I just felt super comfortable. And that then it became really clear to me. So it, it wasn't until a little bit later in the process, though. How's the transition to college? And I asked because I watched a couple interviews you've done over the years, and everybody remembers, you know, your performance. You're a sophomore on that 85 championship team. But you mm-hmm. yourself said that you struggled that first year and a half or so of your career. Yeah, it was really hard. It was really hard for me. I think the, the pace of the game was very different from high school. The agility, the size, the, the court coverage that guys could, you know, could ha- make happen. I had a tough time adjusting to that. And finding my place, you know, kind of on the court and what I was going to be able to do out there to, to impact the team. So it was a really, t- I had a really tough time with it. I really struggled and I was kind of, you know, became a little bit of a basket case with it. And Coach Mass was, was incredible at the time to kind of help me get through that process. Because towards the end of my freshman year, I'm thinking, did I make a mistake? I'm thinking, should I look elsewhere? You know, should I look at a mid-major or smaller school, whatever? And he just said, look, you just got to hang in there. You know, you're capable to play at this level. You, you just got to get comfortable with it. And it's just going to take a little time and stay patient. And, you know, the same holds true from teammates just continuing to be positive, you know, wanting to get me involved in the game find shots for me, help me get comfortable with the game at the college level. But it was really, it was really hard. And I didn't know if I was going to make it, you know, my freshman year. Was there a moment when you realized you were over the hump? Was there a game, a shot, a practice where all of a sudden it just kind of crystallized, things slowed down, you could feel yourself kind of exhale? You know, it's, it's crazy to think this. When I look back on that, the time that that happened was the first game my sophomore year in the NCAA tournament when we played Dayton and it was at Dayton up until that time, I still, I was getting more playing time during the regular season and some games quite a bit, but then other games, not, not as much. And I was still inconsistent, you know, still not shooting the ball. Great. Making some mistakes on defense here and there. So I, I was still very up and down. It was still a roller coaster season as a sophomore even, but that game against Dayton and being in the game, at the end of the game against Dayton was a huge confidence boost for me making a bucket with a minute or so to go driving down the lane. We were holding the ball down the stretch because it was a tie game, you know, just taking the action to get to the basket and, and score and put us up. Um, we ended up winning by that, by that margin. I think that's, it was almost then that I kind of really felt like I belonged. And that season people remember the end result, but you know, up and down for you it was up and down for, 
the team. I think you guys were like 19 and 10 yeah. on Selection Sunday. So yeah. very much bubble-esque. Mm-hmm. What do you remember kind of, you know, take me back to like March 3rd, 1985. Mm-hmm. What yeah. do you remember about that season from a team standpoint? Very up and down. The one thing that I think we could kind of fall back on a little bit was that five of our losses that year were to the number one or number two team in the the country at their net season. And that was St. John's and Georgetown. And the Georgetown games were close. Uh, The St. John's games, not so much. Maybe one of them was close. They kind of had our number, but we had, you know, we were not sure at all if we were going to get in at that at 19 and 10 with some tough losses along the way. We get hammered by Pitt at Pitt, the last game of the regular season on national TV, which is never a good thing. And then we have to play them right, right, you know, the next five days later in Madison Square Garden. And, you know, we're thinking we absolutely have to win that game to even have a little bit of a shot. And we do. And, and, you know, that was kind of our feeling was like, if, if we, if we could win that game and get to 19 wins, we, we'd be on the bubble. We'd have a shot. And fortunate for us, we, we, we got in, it was euphoric. I have to say when we were watching the, the selection show and our name came up, I, it didn't matter to any of us if we were a 19 seed, right? We were, we were, we were just on edge, everyone on edge, especially our, you know, Eddie, Pinkney, Dwayne McLean, Gary McLean, our seniors, you know, those guys, you know, you don't want to go out that way, <laughs> you know, and they were all terrific, tremendous players, but you just don't, you wouldn't want to go out that way um, and have it end that way. So for them, it was huge. And I think once it happened, they became super, super determined to not, to not let it end, you know, right away and, and have a run. When do you remember, I mean, you talk about hitting the shot against Dayton, so obviously from a personal standpoint, you know, that's an incredible moment. But do you remember in the locker room when the run became real, when it became more than we won an NCAA tournament game to kind of looking at the way guys are playing, the focus, the opponents, and going, why not us? Why can't we get to the Final Four? You know, was there a a moment or is it just kind of – you're surviving and advancing and, and just looking what's ahead the next curve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's more the latter. I think it was really in our situation, one, just feeling really fortunate we get in. Now we go to play Dayton at Dayton. The second round game is against Michigan, who was top three in the country the whole season, top four. And <clears throat> I credit Coach Mass and our staff for really keeping us in a – you know, kind of one game at a time stretch or a one game at a time mentality and never really allowed us to look ahead or look past anyone and think, you know, what if the only time, and I don't, I don't want to jump the gun on our conversation, but the only time coach mass gave us, you know, a little bit of a, a soundbite to go contemplate or think on was the afternoon before the championship game. Before that, it was always, okay, here's what we have to do to win today. 
here's the defenses we're going to run against this team. Here's their keys on their end. Let's go execute. Let's go win. So we win the game. Next up, who's up next? Some days in that, in the turn, obviously you play Friday, then you play Sunday. So you don't have a lot of time. There's basically you have one day to prepare and watch film and do that. So there's very quick turnarounds on the weekends. So they, they did a really good job of just keeping it kind of honed in on one, one game at a time. But they also let us, you know, the coach Mass and the staff, they also let us enjoy a little bit of it too. We were able to spend time with our families or fans. He would let people come to practices and watch some of the practices. So he took a little bit of the edge off being there. And he in particular was incredible during the tournament at not getting too volatile. You know, he was obviously a volatile animated guy on the sidelines and uh, you could see him rise to the occasion and get in the officials faces, get in our players faces. But during the tournament, he was less like that and more, a little bit more under control, never got too up and down. And I think that helped steady us and keep us focused during the stretch and during the run. Was there a moment when you realized you guys were getting more attention that you had kind of captured, you know, people's, the country's heart as the, you know, for la- the, the little engine that could, the team that, uh, was there <laughs> yeah. that moment when you, cause I don't I don't know, 20 years old. I don't know if you're thinking in those terms. You're just thinking, mm-hmm. I want to keep playing, keep hooping and win the game. But was there a realize when there was there a moment when you guys realized that people had gravitated to, to your story? I think it happened a little bit in pieces. Um, I think after beating Michigan in the second round, they were such a dominant team, so physical. Roy Tarpley, Antoine Gilbert, Gary Grant, Richard Relford. They, they were they were just a huge physical team and had had an incredible season and i think when we beat them i I think people took notice a little bit a little tiny bit and said interesting you know maybe this maybe they got something going here after that though i think it really didn't happen until two games later when we beat when we play carolina and have an awful awful first half and then come back and win that game i think then you know, now we're going to the final four. It's Coach Mass's first final four. Then I think the lights went on <laughs> and we were under the spotlight of a final four. Um, and that's when I kind of feel like people woke up to the fact that, you know, this team's this team's not bad. You know, they're not it's not smoking mirrors at this point. The big the final four, and it's funny, I still remember the sports illustrated cover i think it said something like big east feast because it was yeah. three <laughs> yeah three big yeah. east teams you guys georgetown yeah. and st john's and then you guys get memphis in the mm-hmm. in the final four mm-hmm. um Lucky what do you remember about that was keith lee their guy am i yeah yeah what was yeah, what do you good. remember about that memphis team yeah just keith lee william bedford two seven footers inside vincent askew um, one of the guards who actually got played for the Sixers for a little bit. And his name escapes me, Andre Turner, the point guard, who was, I think, at that point, the quickest guy I ever played against. <laughs> I mean, just just an incredible, incredible quickness, a water bug out there. And they were very athletic and long. And we, what we saw in them, though, was 
a team that really relied mostly on Lee inside to get easy buckets in Bedford for follow-ups and putbacks and that kind of thing. And we really collapsed and forced them to try and beat us from the perimeter. And they just weren't a great perimeter team. And we clogged it up and Lee got in foul trouble and that helped us too. But we were really fortunate the way the stars aligned in the tournament because if it ended up being us in the semis against either St. John's or Georgetown, I don't know that the ending is so happy or or magical that it turned out (laughs) because we could not beat St. John's. We just couldn't. They had beaten us, I think, seven games in a row over the course of that couple of years that I was in school. And they were so good. And just didn't, we just didn't match up well with them, but we could compete with Georgetown and our games were closer. So the, the way it ended up was interesting because St. John's couldn't, they had a tough time with Georgetown. Right. It's all matchups. It's all matchups. It it really is. It really is. And whenever I hear people say that today and I might be with somebody and they say, ah, that's, you know, that does, that's not what it is, whatever. And I'm like, no, it is. it's so it's so is that's how you know like I mean you think about that Gonzaga team and this even you know the recent this year and Baylor and just was not a good matchup for them to play that team and they were just way too aggressive and the guards were too good and too aggressive to they couldn't compete with that you know (laughs) Um, and that's how it was for us back then it was matchups and we were fortunate to get the right matchups we could play with the teams that we were up against and I think confused them a little bit defensively. We played a lot of different defenses and switched defenses quickly, even on the fly. And that was kind of our advantage. Were you guys the first game, the Final Four? Was Did you guys win yeah. and then you were waiting? Yeah. Do you remember having a rooting interest for, uh, as crazy oh God, as it yeah. sounds, like, let's go Hoyas? <laughs> Insane. I mean, it's inc- it is. It's, inc- it's crazy, right? Because they're – you know, they are who they are, Patrick Ewing and, you know, a defense that was holding teams to shooting, you know, 30, whatever percent during the tournament. And they would just blitz teams and win, you know, games in little spurts. But we were, and we watched part of it from the arena and then ended up leaving maybe at half or a little bit into the second half. But without a doubt, every one of us was pulling for Georgetown. It was that simple. You know, we just looked at, like you said, the matchups and thought, you know, we, we got a shot. If, if they win, we know what we're up against. I think in our scenario, even being a nine or 10 point underdog, whatever we were in that game, we knew what we were up against. And that was a huge advantage for us. Whereas teams, whoever it was around the country, didn't and just could not simulate what it would be like to play against them. And we knew, but we, we had a, we had a very distinct rooting interest that night after our game was over. <laughs> yeah. And to that point, I, one of the quite my, basically my next question following up that if that Georgetown, that exact roster, that exact resume, that exact style is a team from the PAC 12 that you've only seen on TV a couple times. Cause I think one of the things about that Georgetown and a lot of, dominant teams they get this aura about them and Mm -hmm. they're almost up 10 nothing before the the balls even jumped Mm -hmm. you guys yeah you might have lost but you knew they were human you knew so-and-so couldn't go left you knew this guy 
you could yeah. get in his get in his cage if you you know if you played him tight defensively. Mm-hmm. You knew they were human, for lack of a better term. But sure, I mean that really is a huge thing when you're going into as a huge underdog. But they're they're guys. They're twenty twenty one year old guys just like you. There's not this. Yep. You're not falling prey to the, the mythology surrounding their dominance. <laughs> no question. It's a great point, and it's 100% correct. If that was an Oklahoma jersey, a UCLA jersey, an Oregon jersey, you know, pick a dominant team during that stretch, um, or even you know, Michigan or whoever, with that roster, totally different game. Eddie Pinckney had really tremendous success and played Patrick very well. That specifically for us meant, you know, it was an enormous boost from a confidence standpoint because we knew Eddie could pretty much go toe-to-toe with Patrick and hold him at bay. Eddie was a quick jumper. He could really just, he was long and he could compete with Patrick's length and his agility and ability really well. And he really bothered Patrick. And I think that was a huge psychological advantage for us. But yeah, we were not, we didn't walk onto the court that night and look down the other end and and see, like you said, this mythological, you know, uh, Taurus or something down the other end. It was, you know, it was just another group of guys that we knew obviously were great players, great coach, had a superstar, a legend, best ever. They put their socks on, they put their sneaks on, and, you know, they were going to turn the ball over just like we were. (laughs) So it was definitely a huge advantage for us to be in that game. And I think when I watch some tapes of it over the years, there's one, and it may have been Dick Stockton, one of the announcers made a comment to the effect of just another Monday night in the Big East, right? (laughs) And that was was kind of cutting to the chase, you know, that's kind of what it was. You mentioned you guys played them tough. If I got it right, I think you guys lost 52-50 and 57-50 to them during the regular season. But both yeah. games you led at the half. So, I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're toss-ups. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple guys hit a foul shot at the end. You know, one whistle goes a different way, maybe a different. Was the game plan basically the same? Or do you remember, did you guys tweak anything based on how you were playing, maybe how roles had evolved, stuff like that, uh, going into the, the championship game? Pretty consistent with what we had done during the season, but Coach Mass would always put a couple of wrinkles in both offensively and defensively. And that night, you know, obviously in a game like that, for us, one of the most important things just was tempo. And the way you can affect tempo is rebounding, right? I mean, you can't let them get three, four, five shots in a possession. And it did happen a couple of times, but it didn't happen consistently throughout the game. So we would always put keys up on the board and rebounding, getting up on the backboard was number one, getting back on defense was number two. Uh, We really had to limit their spurts and them getting out and then playing within ourselves. You know, it was kind of really the third key for us was Let's play our game. Let's force our style on them in this game and not let their style overtake us. And their style was 94 feet, force the tempo, get turnovers, get the six, eight point spurts and be up, you know, 15, 18 points midway through the second half and the game was over. So one of the things we did 
during the course of the game because of their pressure or, or right before the game that Sunday was put in a little wrinkle on an inbounds play and it would take the pressure. And I, I had the pleasure of inbounding the ball against our pressure defense. <laughs> so I'm inbounding the ball. And one of the things you can do is you can actually throw it to a teammate who is out of bounds on the baseline. Uh, and I don't know if that rule has changed. I don't think so, but I was able to throw the ball to my left to Eddie Pinckney, who would step out of bounds and I would throw it to Eddie if we needed it because of their pressure and he would catch it turn and then get it right away into Gary McLean. And, you know, we wanted to get Gary the ball because he was just really good at handling pressure. And while they looked like they were in kind of a zone trap and a zone pressure, for the most part, once one of our guys had the ball and Gary had the ball in particular and started to bring it up court, we were able to, for the most part, manage the pressure and not turn it over that many times. Now, I think I was still credited with six turnovers that night, which is, which is high for one guy, but as a team, I don't know that we got past, you know, 12, 13, 14 that night, which is, you know, our goal is always about 10. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but we didn't have 20 or 22 or 24 from my recollection. So I, I think it was key, but we put in that little wrinkle of inbounding the ball was one key to just relieve some of the pressure that they would put on you in a full court situation. Always fascinated with guys that are, that are shooters like you. Um, I think people might forget you came off the bench. Yeah. You were kind of a de facto starter. You know, guys might have 40 minutes. You might have 34, but you Mm -hmm. did, you did come off the bench. How tough is it as a shooter to just kind of come out and, you know, Mm -hmm. expected to hit an 18 footer after sitting for 25 minutes. The one thing that I always tried to do, and especially as going through the tournament, as my confidence was growing, there were two things that I did. And one of them I learned from one of my assistant coaches. One was wash my hands with super hot water before the game. And and before we, like, literally, if we would go through warmups and we would go back into the locker room and then come out with like a minute or two left in warmups usually, that when I ran back in there, I would wash my hands with super hot water, almost to the point that they were in pain, but it made them kind of sticky and it gave you a better grip on the ball, on the ball because different balls in different arenas, you know, sometimes they're a little slippery. It's always, there's always a little something. So one of my assistant coaches said, get your hands really sticky. I said, how do you do that? He said, rinse them really hot water. So I did that before all our games. And the other thing was, as soon as I got into the game, I made it a point whatever the situation was to run as hard as I could up and down the court to really get my body loose, you know, right away as quickly as I could, you know, just to force myself to just whatever the situation being just to get up and down the court. And the other thing too, is you never really wanted to have to shoot it the first time you caught it, you know, the first time you were in and, and the ball's moving around against their, their defense. But in that game, if I recall correctly, it was pretty quickly when I got into the game that I was on the right side off the elbow and was able to hit a shot that settled me immediately, you know, to, 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 to let it go and make the first shot that I took just mindset, you know, completely, completely settled. Do you remember, was there a moment aside from the game when you come out of the locker room and did you have that boy we're not Nevin Fieldhouse anymore moment? I mean, you're in the big mm-hmm. age you're used to, but 
you know, the eyes of the world are on this. You, you know, you guys have become a, a national darling. Did you have that? Mm-hmm. Or were you kind of too young to realize it? And we're just playing Georgetown again. And yeah, it's the national championship, but let's go to work. Yeah. You know, one of the toughest things, and I don't know how guys, guys feel today, but one of the toughest things for me, and I think for our team that day in particular was the fact that the game didn't start until almost nine 30. So it's a long, long day. <laughs> And it seems like three days when you're living it and you, you just couldn't wait. So, we, you know, we'd have we'd have our kind of our normal routine. But, you know, usually games during the year would even a late game might start at eight o'clock, you know, or, or maybe once in a while you'd play at nine. But for the most part, games were a lot earlier. And even on weekends, you know, you're playing at noon sometimes or one o'clock. So, you know, you, then you get up, you have breakfast, you go to the arena, you get taped and you're ready to go. This one was you go to shoot around, you do a walkthrough, you go back, you have something to eat, you go back to the hotel room, you're just hanging out with the guys a little bit. You don't, at least for me and most of our guys, you don't want to take a nap or fall asleep. That makes you groggy. Like, so you really had to kind of manage it. And then we would always have a pregame meal and a, and a mass, you know, a few hours, probably three, three, three and a half hours before the game. That was one of the toughest things about it, I think, is just that weight. I think for the most part, we were, I wouldn't say unaware of where we had kind of come and gaining momentum around the country and kind of this, you know, this little inspiration thing that was happening and and people rallying around us in a sense as an underdog. I don't know that we really realized that until after the fact, you know, until we came back and the next day, you know, we're in Philly and we have the, the parade happening. And that's when it started to sink in like, holy cow, this was a big deal. <laughs> you know, like it, I don't think it hit all of us until until then and the ensuing, you know, couple of weeks after that, when the outpouring was just absolutely overwhelming and incredible. Time for a break on one on one. We will have more with former Villanova basketball star Harold Jensen right after this. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest this week, former Villanova basketball star Harold Jensen. You mentioned hitting that first jumper and it settled you. You end up going five for five shooting, and I think you were four for five from the foul line, and all those foul shots are in winning time in the last couple of minutes. Is there a moment in the game when you realize you're feeling it? You know, as a shooter, you know Mm -hmm. when you're fighting it, and you know when you can turn around after letting it go, and you know it's going in. Do you realize after a couple jumpers, like, I think it's my night? I mean, I did feel comfortable, especially after hitting the first one. And then I think the other thing that was happening is everyone was shooting the ball pretty well. You know, we we just collectively had a really good night. And it almost seemed like if we executed well on offense and got a good shot, that we were going to score. Like, it kind of became that. There was that much, I think, confidence in not only – that I, I think had going, but that the entire team had going and you feed off of that. You know, there's just such an energy that you get from that. And I think knowing that, Hey, if we execute and we stay within ourselves, get good shots, we're going to score. We're going to make shots. We're going to make shots and playing as much as I did. I think I got came into the game seven or eight minutes into the game, six, seven minutes into the game and scoring a couple buckets in the first half. I think it just made me feel personally made me feel so, so comfortable that, I, I was not going to hesitate. And, and as a shooter, 
you know, he who hesitates is lost really applies. And I think um, for me personally, that, that was a, what it was all about. It was getting into rhythm, you know, catching the ball in a rhythm and just letting it go without any second thought, without any doubt. And it was a huge, huge positive for me to be to feel that way during the course of a game like that. As the game's going on, are you sensing frustration from Georgetown? No question. Yeah, we, we could. I mean, I think you can you could see it. You could hear it amongst themselves, you know, a little bit of kind of back and forth amongst themselves. And, you know, they they, they I think they had a good deal of respect for us. I think they knew that it was going to be a competitive game. But I think they also believed that at some point they would ultimately get to us. And that their style would ultimately overtake our style. And as the game moves on and now you're getting later into the game and that hasn't happened, I kind of think that's when you start to get, you know, I I thought I felt like that's when we started to get a little bit of the upper hand there and sensed more frustration, you know, from them. And not only frustration, but maybe just a little bit of uncertainty. And from a team like that, that played with such incredible confidence and just belief in what they did to, I think, get maybe just a just a little bit of uncertainty or hesitation, maybe in what they were doing. You know, it, it, it meant a lot for us to kind of start to get that that sense of having a little bit of an edge. But they were incredible. You know, you know, one I think still to this day, one of the best teams ever. And obviously was one of the greatest players ever. We did we did find a way to get a little bit of an edge there, I think. You hit a jumper with about two and a half left, and I'm pretty sure that was the jumper. You guys never trailed after that. And then you hit four foul shots. Am I do I have the timing correct there? No, I think you're right on the money. Yeah, it was about two and a half and we had gotten a ball back on a on a turnover. They were they were up one. We had missed a shot, I believe, or they had blocked a shot, or maybe we turned it over, but they they had the ball with three and a half, four minutes to go. And they started to hold the ball and coach Mass looked at us on the court and, and said, Hey, you know, we're okay. We're okay with this. We're down one. We would have, we would have taken that, you know, if you'd said before the game, Hey, right. you'd be down one with three minutes to go. We, we would have signed up for it right then. And here we are in that position. And so we didn't, we didn't get too. we didn't extend ourselves. We still stayed back a little bit in our zone. But then as we got down under three, we, we came out just a little bit to kind of like what today is around the three-point line. And as they moved the ball around, um, they had a little bit of a bad pass. And I think it bounced off of Bill Martin's leg. Dwayne McLean scooped it up. And, and now, you know, now we have the ball back. We came down, call a timeout. And really, we're looking for Eddie Pinckney to um to try and get the ball in the lane somewhere get to the foul line Eddie was a terrific foul shooter and we did get him the ball but they were they knew that too (laughs) so for the most part the ball moved around the perimeter a few times until I found myself with a good look on the right wing and, and was able to knock it down what's going through your mind as you hit that shot and as you're at the foul line you know multiple times are you are nerves a thing at all, or are you just kind of so immersed in the game situation, time? You know, are you thinking of national championships hanging over your head, or are you just thinking I got to hit these foul shots and then what do I, you know, where am I going defensively after I make them? 
trying to stay in the, in the moment, I, I, what I, um, in any situation like that, but obviously never being in that situation in particular, what I thought about was practice. I, I really just tried to think of being in the gym by myself and what that felt like for me, just saying, you know, I've done this before. I've made a hundred in a row in practice in the gym by myself. I can make them now. You know, and it was kind of that quick little snapshot for me of saying, where am I right now? I'm in the gym by myself. There's nobody here. And having a routine, you know, I think is always a good thing in a situation like that, too, that you can kind of trust. And I had a three dribble routine, pick my head up, focus on the front of the rim and let it go. And it was just trying to stay as comfortable and as focused as possible and breathing you know, breath is so important in sports and just trying to take a good deep breath before, before you come up to shoot the ball. But beyond that, even down to the last couple of seconds, you knew you had to get back on defense. You know, it was still, it had obviously grown tighter at the end, even though we had, I think, pushed it to maybe four or five point lead by making some foul shots. You know, you still, we still had to, to finish the game off and, and it was never a let up in that level of intensity until the buzzer sounds for sure. And the final play, everybody will remember, you're, you're actually the inbound guy yeah. with two yeah. seconds left. And kind of the whole mountain there is just getting it to one of your teammates. Once you guys catch it, you're up, you know, you're up to two points. Uh, the game's going to be over. Yeah. Run me through that last, you know, because yeah. somebody felt you threw it to a guy that fell down. There was really two options for me, and one of them was, I mean, the first thing I had to remember was I couldn't move. You know, there are times when you're inbounding the ball that you can run the baseline. And there are times when you, when you can't based on the rules. And in that particular situation, because we had called a timeout to set up that inbounds play, I couldn't move. So the, the first thing I had to be aware of was I could pivot, but I couldn't take any steps. So I'm stuck in that spot and I wanted to get away from the backboard. You never want to be underneath the basket to try and inbound the ball in case you have to get rid of it, you know, throw it long or high, whatever. But Dwayne was the first option and he was isolated to my right along the sideline. And his goal really was just to break free, almost like a wide receiver, Mm -hmm. you know, would try and break free from a defensive back. And my second option would have been to throw it up towards half court. And Eddie was up towards half court. Eddie Pinkney, who was, who was our best, best jumper, best athlete really would have been to, because even if we lose the ball there, they're, they're throwing a half court shot up potentially. Right. right? So, but Dwayne breaks free and then collides with uh, one of their guards and goes to the ground, but he's open enough where I see enough of a window to just get it to him. And Dwayne, is a super smart guy and, and, and terrific player. And he knew not to get up, obviously, at that point, just stay on the ground. And, and, and that's it. What's the, <laughs> what's the celebration like? I mean, what is it, <laughs> yeah. not just in the moment, but like, and you mentioned earlier, the parade and all, mm-hmm. you know, the, the next 24, 48, 72 hours, it, it's just got to be insane. Insane. Yeah, it, it was euphoric. The, the immediate rush of combination of euphoria and relief was incredible to to feel that amazing just joy and sense of accomplishment was incredible at the time and then spending time with just our team and the coaching staff initially in the locker room 
and coach mass talking about, you know, really that he just, he never wanted us to kind of forget that moment and how we could really take it through our lives and, and not just to look back on it and, and settle on it, but, but to leverage it in a sense of, you know, learnings and that kind of thing. He was incredible that way. And he let all of us say something after the game. He kind of went around the horn in the locker room and let everybody kind of express themselves. It was really cool. It was very emotional. I mean, it was all of the above is what you'd expect after something like that. And then after that, it was getting back to the hotel. We get back to the hotel a couple hours after the game and there was all the interviews and all that stuff. And then we get back to the hotel and there was, a, I don't know, it, couple thousand people outside out front of the hotel waiting and it took it literally took 45 minutes to get through the crowd to actually get, get into the hotel so we could get to see our families and that kind of thing and we spent the whole night on a combination of just kind of going room to room throughout the hotel and and just meeting everybody that had come to the game and seeing friends and family and interspersed in between that was, you know, phone calls to friends that had watched and, you know, at three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning, just talking to people. It was just absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. I'll, I'll never forget it. None of us will. And then coming back to Philadelphia and seeing so many people there that were pulling for us, that supported us and the impact that it that it had, you know, sports is a galvanizer, can be. <laughs> and it, it was uh, just an amazing feeling to have been part of that. So I'm curious. I mentioned you're a sophomore yeah. for that year. Still up to – what is it like – let's fast forward to September, October 1985, getting ready for mm -hmm. your junior season. Yeah. You guys accomplished that. Is it difficult? And I don't mean this from a arrogant standpoint. But you just climbed the highest mountain – how tough is it to get up to play Lamar on a Tuesday night in November? I mean, the coaches yeah. are telling you the right thing. You're listening, but you're human. Sure. What? How tough was it to get back into the grind after that? It was. It was hard. It, it, it was. It was definitely hard. And I think we collectively had a tough time with it. It was uncharted territory, you know, having come off of that, like you said, and doing it in the fashion that we did, um, beating the team that we did. You know, th there's obviously, I, I think we could get 70% of the way there, 80% of the way there, but there was still that little piece of, of you that, you know, you kind of had to remind yourself like, okay, th that's over. Like, that's gone. Like, you, you got to move on from that and reestablish a new set of goals, reestablish you know, both personal and team goals and kind of, you know, let that, let that go. And it was kind of hard to let that go. It was hard to let that feeling go because it was so amazing. It was so special. And yeah, you go through the grind, you go through preseason, you come up against a team like Lamar, you're saying in November, you know, and it was, a, it was, a, it was definitely a challenge. There's no question it was a challenge. And then you have a freshman group that year who was, you know, we had a talented freshman group, Doug West, Kenny Wilson, Gary Massey, great players, very, you know, and they have no idea what we had just gone through. They have no idea what that feeling is. And they are freshmen and they're very talented. So they're like really ready to go. And that was a hard dynamic, I think, for the team to adjust to that, you know, that super high energy freshman, super excited. And yet 
you know, then there's the juniors and seniors on that team. And Harold Presley was tremendous and had an incredible senior season, but we, um, we didn't really kind of get over it. I think until probably February, you know, until it was like past the hangover mm-hmm. in a sense. And that's when we started to play a little better and, you know, we were able to get into the tournament and ended up getting beat, I think by Georgia tech in the second round, maybe it would be, Del Curry and Virginia Tech in the first round, but it was there. We had a hangover, you know, we kind of did. Um, and I think it, everybody did. It was just hard. It was like you said, you, we're human and we're 20, 21 year old kids, and we were still suffering from the success a little bit. I think you averaged like 12 your junior year, 16 your senior year. You really establish yourself, you know, as a, a, a premier scorer. And uh, once you graduate, you get drafted in the NBA. You went right into what the USBL with the old Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Philadelphia Aces. What yeah. what did you think of your pro prospects coming mm-hmm. out? Where did you did you think I'll give it a shot? You know, or you know, where were you? I was certainly hopeful. I mean, I there was a um, an NBA draft camp in Virginia and Portsmouth, Virginia. And I went to that and, and I, I actually, you know, I played pretty well. Scotty Pippen was there. There's some really neat, you know, it was kind of cool to see some of these young guys that you hadn't seen before around the country. And, but I, I played pretty well. And some of the scouting services at the time had, you know, kind of put me like third round, you know, back then there was more rounds. And, you know, so I, I kind of was optimistic that I might have a shot. Uh, I had also had offers to, to play in Europe at the time. So I could have gone over to a couple places to England and uh, France, I believe Um, I had offers to play professionally there and decided not to do that right away, but to try and get into a camp. So I get drafted. I end up being drafted six round by the Cavs, get let go after training camp, play with the aces and, you know, wanted to, you know, again, try and give myself another, another shot. And had had some f- problems with my feet at the time. I had some bone spurs in my heels. And it was frustrating because I couldn't, I love to practice. I love to, to, you know, that was part of what I just loved about the game was just practicing. <laughs> and I couldn't do it. And that really got to me. It really almost turned me off in a sense from it. And I got so frustrated by it talked about having surgery with our team physician at the time who ultimately ended up having, I ultimately ended up having the surgery, but it wasn't until about five years after that. So I kind of walked away from it for a few months and just to see how I would feel one, if I could heal and, and maybe get better a little bit and then jump back into it. But that never, that never really happened. So that was kind of how it, how it came to a close. I, I think looking back on it, that's probably one thing I would have changed in my career is I probably would have had surgery sooner and recovered and gone to Europe and played for maybe a season over there mm-hmm. to see if I might get a shot to come back. But it was, you know, it, the league at the time was just starting to get like, I mean, obviously there was always great, incredible athletes, but it was really starting to get athletic during that stretch. And that was early part of Jordan's career. And all of a sudden the guy, you know, Pippen and those guys are starting to come into the league. And yeah, I was, I, I, at that point, I kind of knew I I was a little bit of a long shot, you know, to, to make it, but 
I think not a regret at all, but I think if I would have changed anything, I would have given Europe a shot just to see if I could, you know, play for a couple of years there, maybe improve enough to the point or become a specialty player that I could, you know, maybe had some minutes back here in the NBA, but uh, I was blessed, you know, by the rest of it. So what's the USBL experience like? I don't think a lot of people remember that league. (laughs) No, it was really pretty good. I mean, it was kind of, I guess, you know, kind of a little bit of what maybe like the G league is today Although the G League, I know today, focuses a lot on the younger mm-hmm. players, our group in the USBL was veterans. You know, it was, you know, a guy like Jim Lampley, who had played in the NBA a little bit. Michael Brooks, who was played at LaSalle and played in the NBA and gotten hurt. The poor guy who was an incredible player. Stu Granger was on our team who played in the NBA for a season with the Knicks, I believe. And now was back trying to figure out a way to get back into the league. So it was a mixture of guys like me who were just getting started. And then other guys who had been out five years or six years and lefty Irvin was our, was our coach at the time. And it was really, it was pretty interesting. There was about eight teams in the league. And it was all East Coast. There was a couple teams down in Florida. And then the rest of us were mostly between here and New York, maybe one in D.C. area. And it was guys that were in a mixture of a variety of places. We played against Lloyd Free, World Be Free. Right. You know, played against Michael Ray Richardson, who had been in the league, was an, was an all-star, had some challenges. Again, was trying to find his footing somewhere. This was an opportunity to play. You know, you were you weren't making much money at all, but it was just it was an opportunity to keep playing at a high level and kind of see where you fit potentially. So that was for me, that was kind of my goal was like, okay, if other than a you know, a a one week or a 10 day training camp that I had, I didn't really have exposure to the to the NBA type game. So I wanted to to give this a shot and play for a couple of months and just see how I how I fared. And it was difficult because it's guys from all different, you know, walks of life, so to speak. It was not a a team in a sense. It was really hard. So it was, it was almost like every night was an all-star game, (laughs) you know, and you try and find your way in an all-star game, especially me, who was really more team oriented. It was very, it was odd. It was very difficult, but it was a cool experience. And again, having the chance to play against some of the guys that I did there was, was kind of neat. At what point in your life, you know you guys, what you guys accomplished beating Georgetown, and you know you won a championship, and you talk about it galvanized the city. For my money, your victory, piggybacking on what NC State did a couple of years earlier, mm. transformed the NCAA tournament from a cool college basketball tournament to a national phenomenon that it is now. When do you realize you were a part of something that large that had that type of not just basketball impact, but societal impact? You know, I got to tell you, even to this day, um, it's incredibly humbling, you know, to think about the impact. And I it did seem to to create or be at least one of the factors that helped to spur on March Madness in a sense and elevate it maybe to that. But it's 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 kind of hard to comprehend. I mean, I think the game itself obviously will always be the biggest. And I think our little piece of it is an incredibly um, humbling thing to have kind of in your 
resume in a sense and be a part of it. But it, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating because it was like, I, you know, a lot of people say now, like, and the guys are, have gotten so good and they're so big and so athletic, but there, there was, there was a time I thought that in the eighties with that NC state team, with Jordan, that period Ewing and I, and obviously the stretch before with UCLA and the great players there, but like there was a stretch between maybe mid late seventies into the eighties where I think some of those guys could have played in any period of time. They were just that, that, that good Charles, you know, Barkley, right. Um, who was here for a long time. He was an incredible super guy and an incredible player. So it was, I thought it was a kind of a special time in, in college hoops. And I think to your point, yeah, the kind of that middle part of the eighties there between NC state and us, 83, 84, 85, six, you know, kind of kicked it off a little bit and took it maybe to another level, certainly from a interest and exposure standpoint. So you didn't have like UCLA had what, I don't know, they won 10 times in 11 years right. or something. <laughs> so, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, an eight seed wins, and now it becomes interesting, I think, for people to watch every year. And people started to look for that dark horse, for the Loyola of Chicago, you know, or for the VCU or for those teams that have made runs that weren't, you know, the preeminent or the premier teams during the season. And I think it's made it a lot more enjoyable and a lot more interesting, you know, come, come March. Harold Jensen, this was great. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. That will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank former Villanova basketball star Harold Jensen for being our guest this week. If you like the show, you listen on Apple Podcasts, want to help us out, leave us a rating and a review. Now you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon1060. Thanks so much for listening and for all of your support. And be sure to join us again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.